You're listening to a podcast from Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, whose mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. Good morning. I'm Nate. Most of you know me. Uh, I appreciate this particular Zoom call because I feel like I get to share more of the awkwardness with you guys standing in front of you. Um, it feels strange to preach online, so I uh, invite you into that strangeness. Um, there are some of you I haven't seen in a while, and uh, I'm excited that you're here. You know who you are. I love you. Um, this sermon is the last sermon in our series that we've called The Exile. Um, the story of the exile is a story of God's sovereign hand over the nation of Israel. After the fall of man in Genesis, when sin entered the hearts of man and people rejected the rule of God and scattered across the earth to do things um, the way they wanted to, and it was right in their own eyes, God called one family, one man specifically, uh, and he established a covenant with that family. And through that one family, that was Abram, became Abraham, and that family became the Jewish people. Uh, the exile, uh, the Jewish exile in Babylon and Assyria that we've been talking about later in the story was God's discipline towards his disobedient children. A discipline that was rooted in love uh, in which God continually revealed himself to his people and called them to himself, uh, breaking them of their apathy and their complacency and making them into something that was trusting, and loving, and beautiful. And, uh, that is one purpose for this series that I see. Uh, continue to make ourselves into something more like the beauty of Christ, uh, to break our dependence on worthless things, and to put our hope back into God. Uh, throughout this series, that's been the conversation, in home groups particularly, through questions and through discussions, this uh, idea of hope. And the reality of this pandemic has really provided an interesting context to talk about hope because we're not necessarily hoping in the same things that we were hoping in some months ago. Um, so here's the basic question. In what are you putting your hope? And of course, in light of scripture, in whom should you be finding hope? If you've missed the last couple messages through Hosea or Amos or Nahum, uh, the answer is Jesus Christ. Um, but let's not stop at who to place our hope in, but how is hope in Jesus Christ better than anyone else's hope? How might it look differently for Christians to hope? And next, how do we articulate that hope and express that hope to those around us? Remember that we are in exile as well. Uh, the Jewish exile was this microcosm for this larger story of exile. All humanity is in this form of exile. Our true home is in the presence of the Lord next to his side. And for all those who claim Christ as Lord, we have a unique calling and that his kingdom has already come. It overlaps with our reality. And we get to live out of that reality. Uh, the reality that we all experience collectively, all people, is a harsh one. Um, and the eat or be eaten survival of the fittest nature of the world is observable, it's tangible. Um, and sometimes concepts like heaven and hell sometimes seem like God's way of making that even harsher. Um, but what we believe is that God came into this world out of love to show us a different reality where there's a loving force that controls and is over what we would observe to be natural selection, 
we, again, the collective, we, all of us, observe a world where justice and mercy is just not part of the natural Look at systems of justice and the mercy that we've built for ourselves. They're all over TV right now. Um, look at the ways some of them have failed us in some ways. Look at this pandemic and how that's just compounded everything. Uh, like the people of God in the text today and like us, we are, um, we're just having a hard time seeing God at work. Or it's easy to have a hard time seeing God at work. Speaking specifically to Christians, um, it's easy to live like there's no God. It's easy to live like the rest of the world is living um, without a hope. And it's our hope in Jesus that keeps us from complacency and apathy and keeps us running this race. So we're reading Malachi today, and you can follow along in your own Bible. We'll go pretty slow. We'll stop and slow down at the end and read through some of those verses a little more closely. Malachi's appeal to his people is to take God seriously. The book of Malachi is arranged in a unique way where God uses Malachi, his prophet. Um, Malachi likely means my messenger. He uses Malachi to have an exchange with his people. And God raises six different points through his people, building a case against Israel. Um, this is God's final plea using the prophets in this period. After Malachi, God's prophetic word is silent. 400 years. Malachi is the last book in the Hebrew Bible. And it tells us, again, of a frustrating story um, where God has called people to be his own and they repeatedly have not lived up to what he's called them to. But it also points directly to the means by which God is going to address this problem. So in the first chapter of Malachi, God challenges the people of Israel in challenging understanding of his love. Malachi 1, he says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? The tension that Israel is experiencing at this point is one that I believe we can relate to. Malachi is post-exile. Most of the books that we've been looking for, the Minor Prophets, either point to the exile or past the exile to these wonderful promises that God has, um, Promises that would restore the land to the people, the land of their inheritance. We touched on some of these most recent promises last week in the message from Haggai. In Haggai 2, the people at this point are also in this point of complacency, and they're not just struggling to see God in many ways, they're not even trying. God orchestrates this revival, and these people come back and rebuild the temple that was destroyed in their exile. And he ensures the people with his words. My spirit remains in your midst, and I will fill this house with glory. This glory, the glory of this house shall be greater than the former. In the days of Solomon, a visible manifestation of the presence of the Lord descended and filled the temple. This is similar to the physical, uh, visible presence of God that filled the tabernacle in the days of Moses. This is the revival that they have been waiting for. People were shaken out of their complacency and given a work to accomplish. Rebuild the house of the Lord. Um, and the people at this point, as I alluded to, have all but forgotten about Yahweh, returning from exile, but not necessarily returning to God. We read in through Ezra and Nehemiah this story of powerful repentance and obedience and this reestablishment of the temple. 
the events in Malachi occur maybe some 80 years later, and we don't necessarily see the same sort of gross idolatry and worship of foreign gods so much as just a half-hearted worship of Yahweh. See, the people had expected that this was going to be it. They expected that the Lord would flood their temple, glorious presence, all the nations of the earth would flood the temple and worship the Lord as their own God. But similarly to us, they were experiencing uh, what we sort of called it Red Sea, this already not yet. Like on this side of the cross, we would experience this life-altering relationship with Jesus Christ, but we have not yet seen the final return and the renewal of the heavens and the earth. Um, so in similar ways, God's promises throughout the exile had been fulfilled. Uh, at this point, many of the people had returned to the land, but their situation didn't match their expectations. And they still felt like they were in some form of exile. They were still, after all, under the subject of foreign powers. And Nehemiah expressed that we're still slaves in the land given to us. All the riches of the land go to kings, and God has put over us because of our sin. They were also still experiencing the land working against them, the drought, the crop failure. So the Israelites were discontent, and this is the background, and Israel questions the love of God in this first exchange. Now that I want I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? God's answer is, is not Esau Jacob's brother? I have loved Jacob, and I have hated Esau. Pointing out to them that although Jacob didn't behave any better than Esau, God chose and perceived Jacob to be the conduit for whom God would bless the whole world. Whereas Esau got rejected, so... God loves, um, who God loves is God's choice. That's the point. And God chose Israel to walk in. God loved Israel despite Israel. And that was the bit of foreshadowing that's really good news for us. The second charge that Malachi brings before the people who despised the name of God. The people said, how have we despised God's name? You have despised in God in your worship. Here's what I mean about the halfway worship. In, in Malachi 1.8, God says that when you offer blind animals in the sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer the lame or the sick animals, is that not evil? He goes on to say, I will have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept the offering from the king. Bringing offerings before the Lord have become a box of shepherds. Why will they be given? Why even bother? Presenting the Lord with a broken offering. Um, it's like putting your pocket trash in the offering box. The sacrificial system was set up for Israel to offer the best what they had and to trust in God's provision. But the Lord says in response, I will rebuke your offering and I will sprung, spread dung on your faces. The dung is your pathetic offerings and you shall be taken away with this. Not impressed. Uh, the third charge that he brings. Israel. It says, you have been faithless to me. You've been faithless to me and you've been faithless to one another. And they, of course, cry out, how, God, how have you been faithless? You have forsaken the covenant of marriage with the wives of your youth and married the daughters of foreign gods. The Lord's covenant with Israel is super closely tied to the biblical view of marriage. Israel's view, therefore, practices marriage and sin. Firstly, the marriage of foreign wives 
generally meant the worship of foreign gods. This was a primary way for Israelites, even the great King Solomon, to adopt new religious practices and false gods. Secondly, there was this issue of unauthorized divorce. You couldn't still divorce your wife because you didn't love her anymore. The covenant of marriage was so directly tied to the covenant of God, and not taking that covenant lightly meant not taking God lightly. You can't be faithless to your wives or to me. The fourth thing that God brings against Israel is he says, you have wearied me with your words. And he responds to Malachi 2, how have we wearied you? There are two attitudes out of this passage that are said to weary the Lord. By stating, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights him. Basically, saying that the Lord's sense of justice is perverted. Seeing evil being rewarded and then attributing that to God. The second attitude they take is when they ask this question, where is the God of justice? Implying that there is no just God in control. Not necessarily denying God altogether, but denying God's goodness, and denying God's handle over the situation. Denying God's I know I can slip into this line of thinking when I get frustrated and forget my worldview. Uh, I start behaving like there's no hope. I get cynical. It happens to me when I watch too much TV or when I fall down the wrong YouTube hole or when I watch too much of the news, when I get afraid of uh, the president or politicians or some other powerful figure and that they're going to do something so rash that God's not going to be ready for it. Uh, I start giving the world too much credit. I start to believe that, uh, I start to believe in the wisdom of the world, and I start to find hope in what the world hopes in, the work of my own hands, my own idea of what's right or wrong. Scripture says that we naturally start collecting teachers, uh, tell us what we want to hear, uh, and this is a way that we automatically drift from God and automatically begin functioning as if there is no God. The Lord responds to this question, this justice question, uh, essentially by saying, I have a plan for ultimate justice, but you're not sure what, I'm not sure you know what you're asking for. I will come and burn away all of the injustice, but I'm not so sure you would survive the justice. The fifth challenge that he brings before Israel is he's challenging the begrudging offerings again and their tithes. The Lord says, return, return to me. And the people say, how shall we return to you? He said, put me to the test. Do not test my wrath with your disobedience. Test my goodness and my provision with your obedience. Bring the full tithe to the storehouse and see how I will bless you. Israelites have been neglecting their tithes. So you can understand that God doesn't need our money. The church doesn't even need you. It might be a different church without it, uh, but the Lord will still accomplish his will. Uh, it's a picture of trust. It was hard for them to see that God was providing for them, and it was hard for them to believe that God would continue to provide for them. So they kept their tithes. Um, we can ask ourselves some more questions. Are we investing in the kingdom of God, or are we investing in our own kingdom? Um, and we could easily have a conversation about money right here at Malachi. Or we could have a conversation about marriage. My marriage is rooted in the Lord, and it's another opportunity. 
that I had to serve God and to be obedient. And this is one expression that our, of our faith that also might look a little different to the rest of the world. But I want this message to be a little bit bigger picture. I want to keep focusing on this broader idea of just putting our trust in God. The final charge, the sixth charge that Malachi brings against the people, is he says this, you have, God accuses Israel of working against them, specifically of speaking against them. Uh, and they, of course, answer with, how have we spoken against you? In Malachi 3.13, um, we read, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? We do this and we have somehow expressed that it is in vain to serve God. When we say that anything that would contradict the fact that God is in control, we express a low view of God. We accidentally do this all the time. Why? Because everybody else does. And it's really easy to do what everyone around you is doing especially around elections, natural disasters, and other crises. It's just so easy to fall in line with the people around you and how they're talking and how they're behaving. So those are the charges that God brings before Israel, um, sort of mounting charges of you are not trusting me. So why are these questions that Israel is asking God important for us to think about? Our ability to answer these questions for ourselves displays our understanding of the gospel. What does it look like to answer these same questions in light of Jesus Christ? I'm not interested in going back through everyone. I'm not prepared to go back through everyone, but I do want to go back and revisit the first question. How has God loved us? First of all, we should be prepared with this answer or one similar to it. God chose his love for us while we were still sinners. He sent Christ, his son, to die for us, he took our sin and gave us the righteousness of Jesus, as is prophesied throughout the minor prophets. But what is Malachi's answer to this question in chapter one? Malachi. He was also, or he was more addressing this question of why. Why did God? Why did God choose to love Israel? And God's answer came down to this: uh, I love you because I've chosen to love you. The Lord decides who he loves and who he doesn't. He doesn't really feel the need to explain himself any more than that. Um, but what about we who call ourselves Christians? How is he, or why has he loved us? We're not exactly the same thing as Israel, um, but it does work the same. You read in Romans 9, of the brothers Esau and Jacob, though they were not yet born, they had done neither good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, which she told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy, on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion, on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God and his mercy. But what about those of us who might not call ourselves Christians? It still looks the same. The Lord decides who his people are and who his people aren't. He will call you to him or he won't. 
the path to getting to God is to appealing his mercy in your life. This sets us up for the rest of the book. After Malachi spends almost three chapters laying into Israel for being no less corrupt than the generations prior, living as if God didn't exist, he mentions one more group of people, those who fear the Lord. This is where I want to start reading from Malachi 3, 16 and 17. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and the book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord. So in the day when I make my treasure, make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them. Not as they deserve as we read in Romans, but as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more shall you, you shall see the distinction between righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and the one who does not serve. The name that they esteem in verse 16 is Yahweh, but the name that we esteem is Jesus. In Hebrews 1, Jesus inherits the name of God. He is revealed to be the fullness of God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is also the son who serves God. Jesus represents the righteous son, and we are spared as if we are the same kind of righteous servant. All of this is the work of God. God does all the heavy lifting. I will make up my treasured possessions of the Lord. I will spare them. I will have mercy. One theme that's come up a lot in through this series in the Minor Prophets is this idea of the day of the Lord, right? The day of God, the day of the Lord is the day when God will act in an undeniable way, bringing justice to the wicked and hope to the righteous. This day has sometimes referred to specific battles or acts of God. Sometimes it points to Christ, and sometimes it points beyond three days when Christ will return yet again. This is the final mention of the day of the Lord. We're reading Malachi 4, verses 1 through 3. Well, behold, the day is coming, burning like a when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness, shall rise with healing in your sins. You shall go out weeping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, and they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. The day will not act, says the Lord of hosts. One fire. One fire will burn away the stubble and provide healing sunshine to others. We are made uncomfortable in these uh, passages of judgment when God says he's going to overthrow the whole world as we know it. Sure, we know that God's going to make it right in the end. But one of the reasons that we're uncomfortable is because God is going to overthrow the world as we know it already. He's already working with that. And we're kind of supposed to be a part of that. The world, as I was saying earlier, has its own systems uh, that promote justice and mercy. And these systems that promote justice and order are a grace from God to be sure. I do not think it's wrong to have a military or a police force. It is not wrong to support the economy 
or education, they serve us, they all serve us, some of us. Human beings, human institutions, they are rife with sin and injustice with glaring blind spots. Huge gaps exist in opportunity and prosperity. Have we turned on the news at all this week? It's been nothing but COVID-19 for months, and in the background, these other issues have been bubbling uh, and now just making themselves known. They're being compounded by the pandemic. Uh, race relations right now in the country are garbage. Um, there's just so much anger and so much sadness around these issues right now. People have not always been responsive to calls for justice. Christians, in fact, do not always respond to these kinds of calls for justice. Um, to these same worldly systems that we find, yeah, even Christians find these, their acceptance and security and significance in, uh, also are known to sustain racism and cause suffering. And as I said, these systems are of grace we as Christians have to acknowledge the huge disparities in their ability to provide justice. And we have to acknowledge that out loud for those of us who are experiencing that. It's super uncomfortable to think back to the fact that the most violent like white supremacists in our history, they claim Jesus Christ as their hope and a justification for their hate. And that is an extreme example, I'm aware. But most of us find somewhere in the middle to compromise. When Christ returns, there will be no compromise. Grace is not the same thing as compromise. The wicked will not go unpunished. These systems will not be allowed to go unchanged. But we do not wait for the day. We work for the day. Ignoring pain and violence in these systems is another example of living like the Lord just isn't there. You remember the question, where is the God of justice? Well, part of that answer is that he saved a remnant to represent himself and his justice here on earth. Some of this remnant, as I said, will not respond to these calls or will respond to these calls in different ways. And we all really have a little bit different sense of what justice even is. But God, in part through his people, will respond compassionately to injustice. The sun that rises with healing in its wings is a person, and that person has no hands and feet on this earth, but yours and mine. Issues that get political or political thorny issues, they are not the easiest things to talk about in 15 years. Um, and I know you guys have a wide range of thoughts and opinions, uh, but right now every struggle in our society right now is really highly politicized. The risk isn't in talking about it, the risk isn't continuing to allow it to provide us with our ultimate comfort, provide us with our protection and provide us with our hope. Uh, and then it gets ugly and we don't talk about it. Political ideologies and law enforcement and military for all the good they can offer do not offer any real protection for our God-given religious freedoms. God's people do not need that kind of protection. Our religious freedom is secure in Jesus Christ. And we don't need to defend our religious freedoms in the same way that we need to defend the poor, the oppressed, the widow, the fatherless, and the immigrant. We accept our persecution and defend them in their persecution. 
Christ said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. We are a community of believers. If you haven't given these things a lot of thought, just know that the family that you sit next to on Sunday morning, they might be in mourning. Talk to one another about hard things. Talk to me if I say something hard. I don't want to get in the way. Uh, God is working to bring ultimate healing. That doesn't begin in the next life, but this one. He will use us, but we have to be loving to one another when we do so. We have to humble ourselves to one another as Christ humbled himself. Toward the end of chapter 4, Malachi points us back to the scripture to be reminded, to be affected and to be formed into God's treasured possessions so that we may be spared as a son spared by his loving father. Malachi 4, verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Read your Bible and remember. The gospel will remind you of who you are. I can appreciate the significance of a small reminder. Uh, very recently, one of my coworkers died unexpectedly in the last few weeks. Uh, it was a shock to our theater community, and it was really hard. And uh, I don't remember... I don't know anything different about death now than I did a few weeks ago, but that reminder has had a profound impact on me and our community. And in that similar way, uh, most of us know the gospel and some of us know the gospel really well. That reminder can have a profound impact when you encounter it again. The book of Malachi ends with this epic Jesus-y cliffhanger. Malachi 4, 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the, chil and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This sets us up 400 years of prophetic silence. It's a space between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Malachi points to one final prophet before the Christ comes. Jumping ahead, just in the, not very far at all into the beginning of the New Testament, we read out of Luke. And he will turn, just listen to the language similarities between this and Malachi. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord. God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, and the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the disobedience of the wisdom of the just, and the disobedience to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. These are the words of the angel Gabriel to Zechariah the priest in the beginning of Luke. Words spoken of John the Baptist to his father before John birth. And John would be the one to introduce us to the Messiah. Our hope is a hope that is available to all, and it doesn't kick in when we die. It shapes how we live. If that sounds exhausting, try anything else. The pursuit of God is a challenge, but he will pursue you. 
Jesus states that his burden is lighter. His lack of condemnation towards you is much lighter than your self-condemnation or the condemnation you may feel elsewhere. He is fearsome, but in him you are free from all other fear. God is still building a remnant. Jesus said that salvation comes through the Jews and through him, but God has always been the Lord of all humanity. Remember that disobedience and compromise are eliminated in the coming of Jesus Christ and purification. He can eliminate the sin inside of us without destroying us. Turning our disobedience into wisdom into justice. That brings us through now. I do want to uh, end by praying for us. Father God, I pray that despite my blind spots, you use this message for your own glory, to further your mission, to rescue and to heal. Instead, I don't want to get in your way. I pray hard for hearts to soften. Um, may any anger in our hearts be turned to the gospel on our lips. I pray over the memory, uh, as Josh said, of George Floyd, one name among many, whose death is in the world really hard right now. And we just ask that you would bring healing to the families and communities that are hurting so bad. Uh, I pray that you use these tragic circumstances to bring some kind of justice, to turn anger into compassion. And I thank you for your word. Uh, I thank you for Malachi, your messenger. And I pray that you would continue making us into your messengers from your love. And I pray that you would provide your ears to hear. We do not know what's next for Red Sea or what part you would have us play in the kingdom. But we ask that you would continue to move forward and thank you because we love you. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please visit us at www.redseachurch.org or contact us at info at redseachurch.org.